We'll open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 9. We'll do our second installment in working through this book together, Romans 9. Very important real estate in our Bibles. Really important to understand and accept. Let me read verses 6 through 13 to put those in our mind and just to be a refresher for us in this built on the first five verses. In fact, I'm going to read the first five as well just to get a running start. Romans 1, 9, chapter 9, 1 through 13. Let's look at that together. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But... It is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. But this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was also Rebekah who, when she had conceived twins by one, by one man, her, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. My friend David Mathis writes this hopeful warning. He says, the doctrine of election is a sharp scalpel. It can be wielded with great care and skill and taken up to give life and heal. Or, in the hands of an untrained fanatic or detractor, it can be used to harm, to sever vital arteries, and to mutilate hurting people by spinning out untrue implications, end quote. I think he's so right. When we come to this doctrine, which we're going to be looking at in the rest of this chapter and into chapter 10 and 11, the doctrine of election, of God's sovereign grace and sovereign choice, we have to be very careful. We have to be careful not to go to an extreme of saying, well, God has elected and chosen, therefore we're irresponsible, to, we're not responsible for, for evangelism, and also to go to the other extreme and avoid it, which is saying, since God has not chosen, it's totally dependent on us. This morning, we begin to wade into this deep water of the doctrine of God's sovereign grace, 
his sovereign choice, his absolute election. I've been looking at this passage for a long time as we began Romans 97 sermons ago. And now we finally come to Romans 9. It's, uh, it's something I've been looking forward to. And I have to tell you, I've been a little bit intimidated by. Had a friend when uh, Kim and I lived in Detroit uh, named Rick who, uh, Rick, who was one of the, um, the, uh, the country's leading neurosurgeons in a very specialized part of the brain. He, people would fly from all over the world to have surgery by his, his hand. And, and I remember him saying that he loved being able to help in almost helpless cases. He said, this is why I studied. This is why I trained. I did everything to take the hardest cases. And I remember early in the week looking at this, remembering Rick, thinking, I think this is why I studied, and I think this is why I trained, to, to approach the hardest passages. This is not an easy chapter to absorb. And yet, I think if we simply read it and take it at face value, it's not that hard to understand as it is to accept. So as we begin this subject, I want to give you a little theological preparation. We've been looking at this for a long time. We, we certainly studied it back in Romans 8, 29, and 30. Let me just tell you from the very beginning, you will not have all of your questions answered by your friend Rick in the coming weeks. Uh, people have been working at this for several thousand years, and still they have not sorted out a way to make it fit the infinite mind of God into the space between our two ears. In fact, I might say you're probably going to leave this chapter with more questions than answers. And if that's the case, I think that's a good thing. That leaves us at the foot of the throne in worship, not having God bow to us in our own intellect. Also, we have to guard our hearts from the dangerous word that can creep into any Bible study and threatens the truth of God and threatens his veracity, his truthfulness. Threatens our own theology of our Bibles. And that is the word, but. There are many verses in chapter 9 you're going to want to say, I know the Bible says that, I know this verse says that, but that can't be what it means. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's not what that really means. Well, let's wait and see. How do we begin a subject of looking at God's election, God's predestination, God's sovereign grace? Can we begin where God takes Paul to conclude? Turn over to chapter 11 for a moment. He's going to talk about this for three chapters, and as he crescendos to look at the fact that God receives some, rejects others, that he chooses some, doesn't choose others, that he finds some the object of his wrath and some the objects of his mercy, he reflects and he pauses in verse 22 of chapter 11 and says this, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. He understands that God is both merciful and wrathful. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Do you think Paul fully understood this? Look at this next phrase. How unsearchable are his judgments. 
and unfathomable his ways. If the Apostle Paul who penned this letter can come to the conclusion of this subject and say, this, like Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I, I, I can't contain it. If Paul concludes like that, I think we ought to begin like that and not expect that God is somehow going to solve all of our questions about divine election and human responsibility in just a few verses, in just a few weeks, and we'll walk out of church singing the praises of our pastor because he is so insightful. Not going to happen. So let's dive into this text together. We began our last study in verses 1 to 5 where Paul outlined the reality that Israel is now under the curses of the covenant. God said, if you honor and obey me, if you'll follow my lead, I will bless you. If you don't, certain curses will follow. That's where we find Israel right now. In the past, they've enjoyed these blessings of the covenant. Verses 3 to 5 talk about those blessings, but in the first two verses, Paul says, no, but you're also under the, as Israel, as a nation, is under the curse of God as those who've rejected the Messiah. In a few weeks, we'll look at that great uh, illustration that Jesus gives where he comes by. Remember, he curses the fig tree. They come back by the next day. The fig tree is withered. He says, this is a picture of the nation of Israel because they've cursed the Messiah. They have rejected him. And so they're under, as a nation, under a messianic curse. Now we come to this section in verses 6 to 29, which follows this explanation to provide critical, critical understanding and exploration and explanation of what that means, especially as it relates to God and his credibility. Here's the simple issue. We talked about it last time. If God promised to love and bless Israel, and he did over and over and over, but they are now being cursed by God, while at the same time God is pouring out his blessing on this new group called Christians, raises the question, is God faithful and is God fair? So here in this next paragraph, verses 6 to 29, he begins to give a defense against the charge. He knows that some people are levying against him. That God has been, that Paul, they're saying, Paul, you're saying God has broken his promises to Israel. He's going to be unfaithful to that. I know that he meant something to them, but he meant, means something different to the community of faith now and Christians. And this brings up, this is why this whole section is so important. The credibility of God is at stake. If God made promises to Israel that he is now saying, I'm not going to keep, or I didn't mean that, or I'm changing that, what assurance do you and I have that the promise he made to us, that he'll keep and serve and love us, will be kept by a sovereign choice? This is the credibility of God. Paul understands what's at stake. The charge is, well, if God said it, if God gave us in his word these certain and clear promises, and yet he's not going to fulfill them, then it looks like God's word has failed. It's gotten off track. So we're going to look at this passage together and break it down by finding two ways to understand that God's word to Israel has not failed. Two ways for understanding, to understand this fact. 
that God's word to Israel has not failed. And you might say, well, why does that matter to me? It matters exponentially to you and me because it's the credibility of God. First way to understand God's word to Israel has not failed is by isolating the promise of God. Number one, isolate the promise of God. Look at verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That word failed is a very interesting Greek word. It means of a ship that's run up on a coral reef, of a ship that's come into a wreck. Our, 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 uh, our understanding that God's word might have shipwrecked, not gotten to its intended destination. How could it happen that possibly the word of God might fail that he gave to the Jews, to Israel? Well, in the context, it's the idea that the promises made to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, as we'll see in a moment, might not come to pass. You say, what do you mean? Promises like this, that the seed or descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, Jacob, which would be the Jews, which would be Israel, that they would not be blessed. Now they're under a curse. Maybe they're, God's done with Israel. Or the promise that, they're, that Yahweh would be their God forever. He would woo them in as a mother hen does her chicks. Maybe that won't happen. Or that the Jews, the Israelites, would, would not possess the land of Palestine. Maybe God didn't mean that. Maybe he's changed that. And he doesn't mean the, the literal land of Israel. Maybe he just means the spiritual nature of the earth. I had someone tell me that one time. In fact, he was told me that today that God had re rephrased God, the promise to Israel in the land, very clear borders of this land that he was going to give them. He changed that in Matthew 5 when he said, the meek shall inherit the earth. So now he's just morphed that into us and the earth, not Israel and that land. Creative. Or the promise that the line of David would be perpetually royal or a perpetual royalty on the earth in the Messiah who would come from David's loins, or that there will be a great and glorious future for Israel. Do you believe that? Do you believe God is done with the Jews? Has he really changed and turned his back on those promises or morphed and changed and said, I know it sounded like I meant this, but I really didn't mean that? Isaiah 66, verse 22 just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me forever, declares the Lord, so you, Israel, so you and your offspring and your name will endure. If God made these promises and now he's turned his love and his attention to those who have placed their faith in Jesus, what happens to the promises to the Jews? What happens to the promises to Israel? Paul understands the question in the people's mind is, well, has God's word failed? Did he not really mean what he said? Understand the implications. If that's the case in the Old Testament, what's to keep us from concluding that's the case in the New Testament? Paul's answer provides an important theological understanding that every Christian must come to grips with. How do we understand that? How do we understand that God's word hasn't failed? Look in the middle of verse 6. Here's his explanation for 
Now we start isolating the inheritors and the recipients of this promise. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Lest you not understand what he means, he rephrases it. He says, in other words, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. What he's saying is this is not an issue of genetics. This is not going down to the doctor and getting a test of your blood to see if you have Jewish uh, blood running through your veins. And if so, then you're a child or a son of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that's exactly the opposite of the case. Not everyone who is a son physiologically of Abraham is true Israel. What's he talking about? Well, Paul's a little, little uh, 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 different than the way he phrases it, but in Galatians 3, he says, verse 7, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who are, who are of faith who are sons of Abraham, not those who have Jewish blood flowing through their veins. And as he described in Romans 2, not those who've had surgery. You say, what do you mean? This, this is hard to even say, but there was, a, there was a whole group of Jews then and now who actually believed salvation was by surgery. You say, what do you mean by that? It was the rite of circumcision. That was their proud uh, lineage that they got back from Abraham. But turn back over to Romans 2 for a second. In Romans 2, Paul already hinted at what he meant here. Romans 2, verse 25. For indeed, circumcision, which was the sign that God gave Abraham to give to his descendants, circumcision is a value, big word, if you practice the law. Said another way, if you don't practice the law, circumcision is of no good. He's going to go on to say so. If you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Your Jewishness has become Gentile or pagan. So if the uncircumcised man, the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, will not his uh, uh, honoring God be accepted by God regardless of any physical surgery? Verse 27, and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law... Will he not judge you who, through having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? See what he's saying? It doesn't matter about your surgery if, if it's not attached to how you respond to God. Then he gets specific in verse 8. For he is not a Jew who is one genetically, outwardly, nor is circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh. It's not just a superstition or surgical rite, but, verse 29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. How does that relate to a New Testament era Turn over to John for a moment. John 8. Flip back a few pages. <clears throat> In John 8, Jesus was talking about this very issue of people who were saying, look, because we're descendants of Abraham, that makes us special in the eyes of God. 
Now that did if you would follow Abraham, as we'll see. But not just because you have a genetic linkage to Abraham, not just because you're a descendant. John 8, 37, Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, same issue that Paul raises, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Can you believe this? You are Abraham's descendants who received the promise that through Abraham's seed, I would come into being, and you want to kill me? I speak the things which I have seen with my father, and therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father? He's speaking tongue-in-cheek here. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says to them, this is, this is what Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Be righteous. Pursue righteousness. <laughs> but as it is, you're seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father, they said to him. We, we're not born in fornication. We have one father in God. This is incredible. They're hearkening back to Jesus. The, 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 I mean, think of the, the reputation of Jesus. Up to this last year of his life, he is still carrying the reputation that his mother was pregnant out of wedlock. And they're still saying, you don't want to talk about fathers? Ha! We know who our father was. You don't know who yours was. Or if it was Joseph, maybe it was still born in fornication. You were born in fornication. We weren't. It's incredible. I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't even answer that accusation. It's just not even important to him. He said to them, but by the way, they say, God is our father, in verse 41. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. There it is. There's true Israel and false Israel. If God were your father, you would love the Messiah, Jesus. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. <laughs> Listen to this. You want to talk about fathers, he says? Let's talk about fathers. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. Like what? He was a murderer from the beginning. They wanted to kill him. He does not stand on the truth because there's no truth in him. They weren't recognizing the truth that's in Jesus. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie. That's what they did about Christ. He speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. Watch the unfolding weeks after this conversation. They would invent lie after lie after lie about Jesus. What is he saying here? Spiritual privilege only takes you so far. William Newell in his excellent commentary on Romans says this. To regard spiritual privilege as spiritual reality is the very deadliest delusion. Let me say that again because it has great implications for those of us in the church. To regard spiritual privilege, being around God's word, being in a good church, for the Jews having the law of God and having the, the temple 
To regard spiritual privilege as spiritual reality is the very deadliest delusion. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. There's far more to being of Israel than being genetically tied to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To be a true Israelite, to be a true child of the promise, you honor the God of the promises. And that ultimately fulfilled itself, as Jesus said, in if you love God, you will, if, you, if God is your father, rather, you will love me. Back to Romans 8. He gives a little footnote. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. This is important because they understood the, the law of the progenitor. What that meant was the oldest son had the rights in the family. Very, very important ancient Near Eastern custom. That's where all the inheritance went. That's where the, the um, uh, 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 power of attorney was. It was a very, imp- very important to be born first. He says, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Why is that important? Because Isaac was not Abraham's first son. Who was? Ishmael. And what's interesting is that the promise was made to Abraham and Sarah that he would fulfill his promise through them. Sarah gets impatient. Whose idea was Ishmael? It was Sarah's. Now, it didn't work out so well for her in the end. That's, that's another from Genesis 25. We'll, we'll talk about that at another time. Ishmael was born first. That's why he says, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. The point he's making here is, you want to talk about lineage? You think it's important to talk about bloodlines? If you want to make the big deal about bloodlines, God violated the bloodline in the very first generation. It's not about bloodlines. It's about a promise. Ishmael was not the child of the promise, Isaac was. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named, not Ishmael. Now, Ishmael was promised uh, a great inheritance. In fact, the Edomites come from Ishmael. The point is that the Jews trace their connection to God back to the relationship with Isaac. Isaac's second son, Isaac is the second son, not the first, which was, Ish, which was Ishmael. Which was Ishmael? Say that three times fast. I have to go back just for a minute. Genesis 17, verse 19. Just listen. God said, no, Sarah, you're, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. What about the firstborn? As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He will become the father of 12 princes. I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. What was Sarah's response to this? Remember what she did? She laughed at it. Verse 8. That is, back to Romans 8. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, 
but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. Now we find out that the true descendants of Abraham are those who do the deeds of Abraham, obey God, follow him, trying to be righteous, responding to the righteousness given to them. Listen to how Paul told this to the Galatians. Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to the, here's our word, promise. Not all ethnic Israel is spiritual Israel. We're going to find out in chapter 10, chapter 11, he actually takes us, those of us who are Gentile believers, and he grafts us as a plant into his work with the nation of Israel. What makes us children of Abraham? It's not having Jewish blood. It's believing God, specifically in the gospel. The point is that being born as an Israelite or a Jew doesn't mean that you're a believer. Not now, not ever did it mean that. Remember Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. It started from the very beginning. It's all about loving, following, obeying God. Verse 9, For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come next year, and Sarah shall have a son. He promised that Isaac would come, and Isaac did. But listen, Isaac didn't believe the promise. He was the child of the promise. So it's not that Isaac had this great faith in the promise. It's the fact that the promise was fulfilled through Isaac. Salvation does not come by birthright, nor by surgery, circumcision. It comes by grace through faith. That's been the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. Isolate the promise of God. The promise of God was given to those who are true children of God by the promise, not by birthright. Number two, second way to understand that God's word to Israel has not failed. Number two, accept the choice of God. Accept the choice of God. Now, let me just say from the beginning, we're going to cover this very quickly and we will have much more to say about it next week in reference to the next passage. But we have to connect it because verse 10 says, and not only this. It's an instant connection. But there was Rebekah also. Now we get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have the same thing happening with who's born first, the progenitor, and who's born second, and the child of the promise. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. You remember the story? She's pregnant. She has two children, one with two boys. Uh, one comes out. Who comes, who, comes, who comes first? Remember? Esau. And then came Jacob holding on to his ankle. Very graphic and detailed uh, description of, of the birth. Now we get into the explanation, verse 11. For though the twins, Esau and Jacob, were not yet born, this is important, they're in utero. And if that's not enough to describe their state, this is incredible what Paul goes on to say. They were not yet born and had not done anything bad or good, good or bad. 
Either one of those would have been a great descriptor, but he adds both to make sure we know this is before they even had choice. The twins were not yet born and had done nothing, anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of the works, because of works, but because of him who calls or chooses. Stop right there. Now we come to this fact. Here's the reality. You have Esau and Jacob who are in utero. They're, they're not yet born. And God chooses one over the other. Not only does he choose one over the other, he chooses the one who's going to be born second. That's significant as well. Just like Isaac was born second. And his point is, this is about the promise, about what God promises to do, about God's choice, not about the progenitor, the firstborn. Now, isolate this. This is, a, here's where we, we find a very important word. Well, look back, first of all, it says, uh, before they had done anything good or bad, they obviously hadn't acted at all, so that God's purpose, God's purpose should make, make uh, uh, Romans eight twenty eight echo in your mind. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called by God, to those who are called, loved by God, those who are called, what? According to his purpose. Then the next passage goes into foreknowledge and predestination and calling choice. According to God's purpose, so that God's purpose, according to his choice. Do you see that? According to his choice. The Greek is emphatic. It says, it uses the principle, not even, not even the person of God. It says that according to choice, and the obvious is God's choice. How do we know it's God's choice? <laughs> Could these two twins in their mother's stomach do anything about choosing? No. God's choice, that's why the New American Standard uh, supplies this, his choice, but it's literally according to choice, God's choice, it would stand. Now, when you look at God's choice, this idea of election, you have three options. God either chose none and no one would be saved. God chose all and we're universalists and everyone is saved. Or God chose some. Now think about that. That's a great discussion for you to have when, when you, uh, maybe at lunch with your, with your kids who are asking questions about this. If it says that God had a choice, did he choose all? No. I don't think anyone would argue that there's that er, the, the, the universalist argument that everyone is saved because they're so inherently good. But we also wouldn't say he chose none. I believe in his son, the Lord Jesus. I, I, I'm, I'm, it's remarkable. I, I can't believe. I know that I believe. So there's some that believe and some that don't, which means that some were chosen and some were not. This is divine election. This is predestination. This is the echo of Romans 8, 29 and, 20, and, 29 and 30, which says... For those whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. These whom he justified, he glorified. 
If you're going to understand the rest of chapter 9, you have to come to grips with God's choice in verse 11. What does it mean? Well, in this context, God made a choice between Jacob and Esau before they were born. Not only before they were born, before they made a decision to do good or evil, right or wrong. This was not based on anything they've done. That's the point. It wasn't based on anything they had done, but everything that God would do. Note also the God's purpose is involved, as we said in 828. This is what he intended. Namely what? Now we find this principle that, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. Genesis 25, 23. We know that Esau would end up selling his birthright to Jacob and he would serve his brother. That's a wonderful story how that plays out. But even as they, um, as they grew up, it wasn't that the chosen one had this great, amazing character. I have a friend named Jake in California, and he's Jacob, and he, he, he loves to say, I'm glad my name is Jacob, and I hope I was named after the promise and not that rascal Jacob. Have you read Jacob's life? Is it some pillar of, of, uh, of uh, righteousness? I think not. You say, well, what does all this lead? Verse 13, just as it is written... Malachi 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A woman once said to Mr. Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Mr. Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. And he's right. What is this hatred of Esau? It's clearly described in Malachi 1 that Paul is quoting here. Malachi 1 verses 1 to 3. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his, inherit, his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. That's the Edomites that he was addressing. Now let's ask a quick question. What does this hatred mean? You have to try to divorce this idea of emotion from this. God's love is no more emotional in the way you and I understand love as his hatred is emotional as you and I understand hate. It's not ooey and gooey love and it's not wretched and out of control hatred. It comes back to his choice. I grew up with a statement that I, I repeated often. Maybe you've repeated it often as well. <laughs> that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Is that true? Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, speaking to God, hate all 
who do iniquity. Hate means they're objects of imminent divine wrath. Deserving objects of wrath, righteous anger from God. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence hates his soul, God's soul, hates. It says so another 14 times in the first 60 Psalms. What do we do with this? I think we have to back up and... And we typically say, approach this passage and say, well, we want God to be a kind, gracious, loving God. So let's start with the, that he loved Jacob, the rascal that he was. And boy, it's kind of bad that he kind of hated Esau. Our starting point isn't, why would he hate Esau? If Psalm 5 says, do, I, do you not hate all those who do iniquity? You hate all who do iniquity. We all start as Esau. I mean, do you understand that? That's our starting point. The amazing point is not why would he hate Esau? The, why would he love Jacob? Robert Haldane says this Nothing can more clearly manifest the strong opposition of the human mind to the doctrine of divine sovereignty than the violence with which human ingenuity has employed. To wrestle with the expression, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. By many, this has been explained thusly. Esau I have loved less, but Esau was not the object of any degree of divine love. If God's love to Jacob was a literal love, God's hatred to Esau must be a literal hatred. It might as well be said that the phrase, Jacob I have loved, does not signify that God really loved Jacob, only that to love here signifies only to hate less. And that is all meant by the expression that God hated Jacob less than he hates Esau. If every man's own mind is a sufficient security against concluding the meaning to be, Jacob I have hated, his judgment ought to be a security against the equally unwarrantable meaning, Esau I have loved less. Then he says, hardening, which we're going to get into the next passage, hardening is a proof of hatred. Why did God love Jacob? Why would God love Jacob? It's the same question as why would he love Israel? Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says this, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because... You were more in number than any of the peoples, for actually you were the fewest of all peoples. But he set his love on you because the Lord loved you. You said, that's really no explanation at all. And you're right. Why did God love Israel? Because he loved them. And if you think that's hard, wait till next week. I'll have a compassion on, guess who? The one I'll have compassion. Express loving kindness on guess who? The one I'll have loving kindness toward. He, he doesn't provide an explanation. You know why? <laughs> there is no explanation. Because there's nothing lovable in anyone. We're all objects of that hatred. 
And remember that the point of this passage is to understand elect and non-elect Israel. But the implications for God as a choosing God and an electing God are obvious and implied since Paul spoke of it in Romans 8, 29. But don't miss the parallel here. Just as it is true that all who claim to be Israel are not truly Israel, not all who claim to be Christ's are truly Christian. You say, how do you know? The same principle. Do you love Jesus? Do you follow his commands? Just as the children of the promise loved God and followed his promised commands. Now, if you're smart... And I know you are. And if you think, and I know you do, you hear this. He loved Jacob. He hated Esau. And that means love, blessed, hated, cursed. And that's what it means. And this choice was made before these two brothers were born, before they had done anything right or wrong, good or evil, you would say, that doesn't sound fair. In fact, it sounds unfair. In fact, it sounds unjust. Which is exactly the question Paul asks and answers in the next sentence. Robert Mounts reminds us, Paul was not building a case for salvation that in no way involves the consent of the individual. I like that. Nor was he teaching a double predestination here. Rather, he was arguing that the exclusion of so many Jews from the family of God did not constitute a failure on God's part to maintain his covenant relationship with Israel. He had not broken his promise to the descendants of Abraham. And if you're like me, then this, this causes you in the recesses of your own soul to ask that question, doesn't it? Well, if God chooses some and he doesn't choose others, I wonder if he's chosen me. And if he hasn't, I should just live like I want. The first eight chapters of Romans say, preach, accent over and over and over again dozens of times. Salvation is by grace through faith. So here's the big key that opens this passage. Ready? How can you know you're chosen if you believe, if you have faith? And that faith, according to this passage, manifests itself in following, trusting, honoring, obeying God, not perfectly, but in some kind of progress. The goal from this passage, the takeaway is not, let me go make sure I'm, I'm, uh, I was chosen. I know Peter says, be sure of your election. And then he says, you do so by living righteously, by obeying. The question is, will you believe? Do you believe? Our evangelism is never, ever, ever framed in this, in this language. Go ask someone, hey, are you elect? Have you been chosen? Do you know the secret Christian handshake? It's to call people to believe. 
and yet none will believe who have not been chosen. You say, how does that work out? Paul knows you're going to ask that question. And beginning at verse 14, he's going to start answering. And you don't have to wait till next week to read it. You can read it all week if you want to. But he will answer. <clears throat> I just don't know that you're going to necessarily, in your flesh, like his answer, which is this. Who are you to demand that answer? It's okay to ask God that question, but when we demand the answer, we cross a line. And Paul will have quite an illustration for you and me about who really is the potter and who's the clay. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I just feel like we have skimmed this passage and yet it's all introduction to what you're going to say beginning in verses 14 and following. Give us grace to accept and understand your choice and also to have the balance that is played out in Scripture that any who thirsts can come and any who hungers can come and that any who are weary and heavy laden can come to you and you'll give them rest. So give us a cautious heart to not fall into the extreme of some hyper-Calvinistic construct or the extreme of saying that you are not the chooser as you say you are. We have come up to a place in your word that we simply cannot fathom. It's too deep. So let us cause us Grace us, enable us to believe that the secret things belong to you, but the things that you revealed belong to our understanding. While your heads are bowed, if you are troubled by any of this, we have our prayer room is open, Jim and Teresa over there. They can answer any question that you ever have about elections, so I'm glad they're there today. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. I love saying I don't know because God does know. If you want to talk about how you can come into right relationship with God through Christ, please come and talk to us. How you might want to be a part of our church, we'd love to talk to you about that as well. Please come. And now, Lord, dismiss us with curious wonder and not demanding questions. You are God, and we are not. Thank you for our access to you in Jesus. Amen.